Support for the National Writers Series comes from Jonathan and Marissa Weggy, supporting good things that need to happen now. Welcome to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Margaret Atwood has written over 40 books spanning many genres, including poetry, essays, and fiction. Her latest books include Hagseed, which is a retelling of Shakespeare's play The Tempest, and Angel Catbird, a graphic novel featuring a catbird superhero. Margaret starts off telling me more about how she came to write Angel Catbird. This event was recorded at the Traverse City Opera House in October 2016. The weirdest one that you want to know about immediately is how, how come I, a person such as myself, um, who isn't 20 or even 30 or even 40 or even 50, <laughs> you can go on, uh, would end up writing a graphic novel otherwise known as a comic book with hard covers. I, I did ask, you know, what's the difference? And they said, well, basically comic books are short and soft and uh, graphic novels are longer and with hard covers. Mm -hmm. So here's how it came about. It is, it is at its heart um, joined to a bird conservation project, which is something that we've been in for quite a long time. And there are four horse items of the apocalypse threatening birds. You notice that that was a general, gender-neutral locution. <laughs> I didn't say horse man. Horse items. Horse items. Horse items of the apocalypse. <laughs> Not horse women, either. Horse things. Um, and they are habitat loss, poisoning, uh, glass window strikes and cats. And cats, in fact, um, do for a huge number of um, migratory birds, particularly every year. But you cannot, but you have to tiptoe around that issue because you know why. It is the death threats from the cat people. <laughs> if you even suggest. You, you just hands the phone, you just. <laughs> Do they pee yes. on your, they come and pee in your car or something? What, the cat people? No, they actually say, I will kill you. Um, <laughs> so you, you can't say to them, you, your cat is an evil monster and you must flush it down the toilet. You can't actually say that. And anyway, I don't believe it because I was a cat person and have been one for thousands of years. Before you were born, I was one. Um, so what could be clearer uh, than that the way to tackle this issue would be to create a flying superhero who is a blend of cat and bird plus human being and can therefore address both sides of this issue and have an identity conflict. So I, as it happens, I was drawing flying cats from the age of six or so and uh, I can prove it because there's going to be one in volume three of Angel Catburn, maybe even volume two. It's, there's one in there. It's coming up. It's upcoming. One of my early flying cat birds. So I had this idea, but I didn't know how to. I do comics, but my comics are primitive. Right. You drew shape. them as a young in the No, 40s. I continue to draw them, and I draw them to this day, but they're quite basic. Huh. They're 
So, what do you do with them? Do you put them in well, a notebook? Well, uh, the latest iteration of them is in a volume called The Secret Loves of Geek Girls, put together by Hope Nicholson. And I did some comics for her that she could put on her Kickstarter to raise money. So I did four four-panel strips for her, which ended up in The Secret Lives of Geek Girls. And what she wanted was um, autobi autobiographical things. So my comics are autobiographical. What do you like about comics? Given what do the I fact like about I, I grew up in them. You yeah. know, it's like, um, it's just, they are a language like other artistic languages. <clears throat> And they're a way of telling stories with the aid of pictures. Um, many kinds of stories, a huge variety in the 40s and early 50s. I read them all. Um, so I knew what I wanted my superhero to look like, but I couldn't draw it myself. Right. I wanted him to look like that guy on the cover. You know, very well drawn. <laughs> How can I put this? Anatomically correct. <laughs> Is there a doll that you can purchase yet? Not yet. No. Wait for it. Wait for it. Okay. So, and I, I, I wasn't in the world of, of young comic artists, but Hope Nicholson was. I'd helped her with her Kickstarter, got together with her in a bar where many things are discussed, and I said, what do you think of, <laughs> how would you put together a comic about a flying cat, bird, human being? And because she was in comics, she's a comics entrepreneur, she didn't give me a weird look. She instead sent uh, me some samples from a range of artists, and we picked Johnny Christmas, his real name, out of the lineup. And he's been wonderful. Some of his work, it's extremely vivid, and um, yeah. I believe you so, call this a splash or something like uh, that? No, it's, uh, that one, that one is yeah. splash, splash page. But do you think the, this, this terminology now satisfies in you the same impulse you had in the 60s when you began writing poems? Because this is somewhat image, it is imagistic, it's almost ideographic in a way, you're using the... You mean comics? Yeah, the comics. Um, it's, an, it's a narrative art, mm -hmm. it's with, which is also visual. It's not lyric, necessarily. No. Uh, but some people's comics are. Some people's comics are very lyric. Such, who, do you have a favorite? Uh, David Mack, extremely lyric. Wonderful artist, actually. Um, he has a series called Kabuki. Gorgeous. Okay. Um, so, but there's a huge range. At, at Comic-Con this year, I, I saw a lot of um, very odd comics. <laughs> what was that like? T t uh, walk us through going to the Comic-Con Comic in San Diego. Con, well, it's you walk in the doors and what do you see? People in outfits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you see quite a few people in outfits, some of which you will be able to identify and some of which you have no idea. But What are you wearing? This time? Yeah. Uh, this time I was understated. I had purchased three sets of ears. Um, at a place called Malabar's in Toronto. Ah. And I did persuade Johnny Christmas and my editor, um, David Shabon, who is the much younger brother of, of Michael Mike. the novelist. Okay. I did persuade them, it took a bit of doing, but I did persuade them to put on the ears and get their picture taken. Were these the Star Trek ears? No. These are cat ears. Cat, oh, cat ears. <laughs> Please. I'm glad I asked. You actually... <laughs> 
You walked into the Comic-Con wearing cat ears. No, we, we did that at the, um, we did that at the signing. Uh-huh, interesting. Yeah. You have more fun, I think, than uh, most authors on tour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. Uh, yeah. So that, um, how did, was it exciting? Did you? Okay, so uh, I first went to Comic-Con four years before, oh. and that was for Ray Bradbury. Uh, and we had all put together um, a book called Shadow Show, which was a tribute to Ray Bradbury and his work, and each one of us was to write a Bradbury-esque story. Hmm. So I had a story in Shadow Show, um, and I was going to go to Comic-Con to help launch it, and he was going to be there. But then he got ill, so I changed my flights. I was going to go to Los Angeles first and visit him, but then, just before I got there, unfortunately, he died. Hmm. So I was there in Los Angeles with his biographer, who was a horror writer called Sam Weller. So, so I ended up going on a road trip to, to uh, San, San Diego. So, so then we got there, and then I fell in with some... <laughs> I fe fell in with some people making a film. And this was going to be the first Iranian vampire Western film. <laughs> so I um, got palsy with them, and they wanted me to be a perk on their Kickstarter to finish the film, because they needed to edit it. So I, nothing loath, I said I would be a perk on their Kickstarter. And the perk that I am can be seen in the film itself which is actually quite good and has become a cult classic. It is called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and it's the only time you'll ever see an Iranian vampire girl on a skateboard wearing a chador, wafting, <laughs> wafting along at night. It's a very poetic shot. Anyway, she's more or less of a good vampire, but on the goodish side of being a vampire. And in her apartment where she lives, she's fond of music, is a poster that might look at first glance to be a Madonna poster, but in fact it, is, it says Margaret. And in this poster, I'm a blonde. Oh. <laughs> and that's what happened to you on the way to Comic-Con. That's yeah. what happened. <laughs> this, this, is a, this is a normal day for, in wow. my life. <laughs> How do you get any work done? That's a problem. Yeah. yeah. Yes, anyway, somehow it does get done. But I, I'm not always going to Comic-Con. No, I know. I no. Know. No. You're going to Cuba to go bird watching? Are you going to Sometimes, the Arctic? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. What do you do when you're not um, writing or the things piling that you into mentioned. cars with yeah, strangers? Well, I yeah. have, a, I have a, a garden Yeah. that takes up a lot of time in the summer. And you come from a family of gardeners. I come from a family of Obsessive gardeners. Yeah. What's your favorite thing to grow? What is my Tomatoes? favorite thing to grow? You mean in the eating department? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Something that won't die when I'm not there. Mm -hmm. So right now, that's my favorite Zucchini. thing. Zucchini. So I'm very yeah. big on potatoes. <laughs> the men, they grow. Uh, things like squash usually does pretty well, right. even if you're not there. Um, 
Your father was an entomologist. My father was a forest entomologist. Your mother was a nutritionist. My mother or? studied as a nutritionist and worked as one uh, before she got married. And you were raised uh, or grew up a lot of your life. You didn't go to school, formalized school, that is, um, until you were 12 because you were at a yeah, camp. Yeah, I, I in didn't. The North. Yeah, I didn't spend a full year mm. in school until I was 12 which for me was the first year of high school. Uh, they <clears throat> skipped people then. I'm happy to say that they don't do that anymore because I was very short in grade nine. <laughs> so that had to be a solitary, was it a solitary youth? Uh, what, being short in grade nine or the rest of oh. it? <laughs> well, being in the woods, um, chasing oh, bears and, oh, and, oh, yeah, and right. swimming. And yes, right. Um, not as solitary as you might expect, because scientists would come to visit. Uh, uh, so there were generally, sometimes some, sometimes fewer, there, were, there weren't no people. I had an older brother anyway, who when we were up in the woods had to play with me, because what other options did he have? <laughs> so um, we generally played I think you would probably call them boys' games. Mm -hmm. So we did play with dolls, but what we played with the dolls was not standard. <laughs> <laughs> Some of those dolls did not survive. Right. <laughs> um. So when we weren't playing war with them, because of course it was the war, there was quite a lot of war uh, imagery around. When we weren't doing that, we were uh, performing operations upon them <laughs> to see what made their eyes open and close. So I, I can tell you the secret of that. Right. You're listening to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. Coming up, more of Doug Standen's conversation with Margaret Atwood. Listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton, founder of the year-long book festival held in the historic City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. Let's return to my conversation with Margaret Atwood. And you read a lot. You read at you, yeah. you started writing at age six. I mean, yeah, very early. I started reading early because other people would not read the funnies to me. Ah. So it was the age of uh, remember those weekend supplements. Occasionally those would fall into our hands and there would be pages and pages of these funnies, which of course I loved very much. And um, I taught myself to read so I could read the funnies. As I say, me and comics go way back. The, um... So yes, I, we, the other thing you did in the woods when it wasn't, um, when it was raining, was um, drawing and writing. <clears throat> And my brother, who was almost three years older, was a prolific writer, much more so than I was at that time. Hmm. He had a big saga going. 
all of his sagas took place on other planets, hmm. as you might imagine. Hmm. He became a neurophysiologist? He did. Yes. And he remains one to this day. Yeah. <laughs> so he went to the sciences. What I'm trying, what I'm thinking of you is in that woods as a young person living in a life of your own imagination, but also having these scientists and the hard facts of life at the same dinner table. And it's, I see that in your writing as well, this um, collusion between imagination and fact. Well, I was the odd person in the family who realized that um, nobody else um, in my immediate family was, was going in that direction. I did have an, an aunt, my mother's um, third sister, and she was a writer. But in those days, there wasn't a lot of scope for her, so she was a writer of Sunday school stories. Wow. But nonetheless, she was a writer, so she took an interest in this writing stuff. Uh, my parents were great readers, but they certainly did not see writing as a career, mm -hmm. not as something you could actually do. You were talking earlier, even in Canada, that would be doubly so. We explained to us the breadth of Canadian literature, the Canadian canon. Oh, you mean the time when there wasn't any? Yeah. Yeah, that's what you're really getting at. And what century are you talking about? Uh, well, no, not so long ago. Yeah. So there was a, some in the 19th century. Um, there was some in the uh, 20s and uh, going into the 30s. The war sort of, there's a big gap and the war really sort of knocked out what was happening before. And right after the war, the paperback came in. And um, paperbacks were all American or English because there were no paperback publishing companies in Canada. So you could go into the drugstore and get Hemingway with a, a lurid cover on it, blonde in a negligee or something. I think a lot of people were drawn into serious reading through that method in those <laughs> days, including me. It's, it's amazing the things you could get at the drugstore. Uh, and then there are other things that you read on the garage roof, like Peyton Place. Oh, oh. Did you read Peyton Place oh, on the garage? Oh, absolutely, I read Peyton Place on the garage roof. Really? Yeah, and it, was, it was shocking. Varicose veins, who knew about them? It was a horrible revelation. Uh, yeah, so yes, that was going on. Um, but you could not go into the drugstore and look on the paperback rack and see a book by a Canadian. Why, though? I mean, because... Because it, it's, it's, you know, it just wasn't there. So nobody had started a paperback company in Canada, and you're looking at economies of scale. Mm -hmm. So it was a much smaller place then. It was just that moment when it was becoming more urban, um, but was still largely um, rural and hmm. small town. And it was, just wasn't, it wasn't, as they say today, it wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. So nobody told me that I couldn't write because I was a girl. Nobody told me that girls couldn't write. Mm -hmm. They were just astonished that anybody would, th anybody would think of being a writer at all at all, any kind of person. So we knew there were writers, but they were dead. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of them were in England. Some of them were dead, but in the United States. But uh, living ones um, were not from Canada. Hmm. Was that a freeing realization? To, to, well, uh, the to, generation to just that? before mine left the country. They would go to the States or they would go to um, England. Uh, some of them were still in Canada, but they hadn't published yet. For instance, Alice Munro didn't start publishing until the end of the 60s. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about what you're looking at, end of the 50s, first part of the 60s. Uh, in 1960, there were five novels published by Canadian writers um, in Canada. Five, count them, five. So as a teenager, I thought, there was a magazine called Writer's Markets. Mm -hmm. It was published in the States. Uh, and Writer's Markets told you um, who paid what for what sort of writing. And it turned out that the people who paid the most were true romance magazines. So I did think when I was 17 that what I would do was, was write true romance magazine stories in the daytime. And that's how I would make my living. Mm -hmm. And then I would write my deathless masterpieces of um, serious prose fiction in the evenings. Mm -hmm. And I did actually start that scheme. I did have a go at it. I read a bunch of true romance magazines. The plots are really simple. Mm. What happens? <laughs> well, <laughs> you mean you don't know? Shame I on you. <laughs> Okay, so usually they had on the cover a girl with a tear coming out of her eye, and in the background another young lady and a young man. Uh, that was the plot. Yeah. So, <laughs> so in various combinations, in various combinations of that. So sometimes there would be, well, I think one of my favorites was, uh, it was the Heathcliff plot. Mm -hmm. You know the Heathcliff plot, you know what that is. A very, um, a very well brought up and polite young man, but somewhat dull, uh, who works in the shoe store, and a different sort of man who has a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> I... It was the age of asterisks <laughs> and dots. <laughs> so asterisks and dots would take place. Mm -hmm. Usually on the sofa. <laughs> and then we were one, dot, 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 dot. <laughs> uh, so I, I had trouble. I, I could do the plots. I couldn't do the dots. I could not bring myself to do them. <laughs> so that plan failed. And my next plan was going to be um, that I, I would become a journalist. Uh -huh. My parents didn't, I mean, they were biting their tongue their tongues quite a bit during this stage of How mine. old were you? 16, 17. Yeah, I think they, they were praying, they were thinking, may it be a phase. Uh, they wanted me to be a botanist. Mm -hmm. and I was good at that, but it didn't call mm -hmm. out to me in the same way, mm -hmm. quite. Mm -hmm. So they heard the journalism thing, and they dredged up a third cousin of ours who was a journalist and had him to dinner. And he said, <laughs> you see how cunning they were. Um, and he said, if you're going to be a, a journalist, 
with a newspaper and you're female, you will end up writing the obituaries and the ladies' page, and that will be it. Yeah. So I had to go to university instead. You went to the University of Toronto. I did. And then you made your way to Radcliffe and Harvard. Well, it was that moment in time. And the moment in time was um, people who were born when I was, which is 1939, so end of the Depression, um, not yet the baby boom. We actually were in a pretty privileged demographic slice because people realized they were going to need people who would service all of these baby boom kids who were coming along, and they didn't have enough of them. Mm -hmm. So people like Woodrow, the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, they were actively recruiting. They were actively recruiting people to be university teachers, etc. And our worry in the 50s was not, um, I will not be able to get a job. Everybody knew they were going to get a job. It was just a question of what job mm -hmm. will I get? So it was a very different sort of thing. And if they had not been actively recruiting, I would have gone to Plan D. Plan D was to <laughs> run away to possibly England or even better, Paris, uh, live in a garret, get TB, <laughs> <laughs> smoke cigarettes, drink absinthe. Uh, write deathless masterpieces and cough myself to death uh, <laughs> at an early age. It's, it was the age when people actually did that, and, uh, or some version of it. Wow. So, I mean, they didn't do the coughing to death thing, but a lot of them went to right. England, particularly if they were interested in acting, they went there. Uh, if they were interested in writing, they might go to Paris or New York or or in London. You um, were writing poems then, a lot of them. Some I was writing everything that I since have written, including the comics, uh, but only the poems were getting published because of the difficulty of publishing novels in Canada at that time. Uh, okay. So we were churning out little magazines in the cellar and on Mimeo machines. And uh, I, type, I, I hand typeset my first book of poems on a flatbed press and made them into little books, which we actually went around to bookstores. They took them. We, we sold them for 50 cents. We were doing that kind of thing. But novels were long and expensive to produce, and Canadian publishers were prone to thinking that they couldn't publish your novel unless they had a co-publisher in the United States or England to share the costs. So the peop a lot of people had novels accumulating while at the same time they were publishing poems. Mm -hmm. And people like Michael and Dachi, same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just the norm for, for us. What do, you, what do you think you write about today, given that what I'm hearing is the sky was the limit. I mean, you were no, the, 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 there wasn't a sky, which I think is what I'm talking about. Right. Well, yeah, sure. It's the same thing in a way. There was there was a big blank space. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah, which you could either feel discouraged by. You didn't feel discouraged. No. I was kind of ignorant. Mm -hmm. I I ought to have felt discouraged. Yeah. Yeah, but you didn't. No. You know, I saw that. Um, 
for those of you, uh, I mean, you know, is it true that every day your mother would get up and take a swim in the bracing lake? At, oh, up, yeah, up that's the true. Yeah. When I, what, the bit I've learned is a uh, heavy dose of self-reliance, almost this Emersonian kind of summer existence up in the woods, and you seem to be a very content person up there following your own voice. And I'm wondering what that voice, who you, what you're hearing. Um, because these books are so varied. You know, we've got to, we want to talk about this, Hagseed, and, which is a retelling of The Tempest. Yeah. And which, then this. Which is not a retelling no. of The Tempest. <laughs> but this fellow is entrapped by science in a sense of magic because of something that happens to him that turns him into the catbird. Yeah, well, right? if you know your superheroes, you know that if this had had happened in the 40s, he would have become Angel Catbird by falling into a vat of chemicals. Yeah. And if it happened in the 50s, he would have become Angel Catbird by being irradiated with atomic energy. But since it is now the uh, 21st century, of course he becomes Angel Catbird through a collision between a cat, a bird himself, a car, and a vial of super crisper genetic super splicer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As right. one would. <laughs> Which you can sell probably in the gift shop next to the doll. Well, you know, they, yeah. they, they pre they're, they're working on this. <laughs> yeah. Maybe without the car accident. But pr <laughs> tell us about Hagseed. Okay, and so Hagseed. Hagseed is part of the Shakespeare, Hogarth Shakespeare series in which I think they've got, they're up to eight people now eight writers of some renown um, who were approached with the idea that each one of them would write, um, would revisit a Shakespeare play of their own choosing in a modern novel. But apart from that, they didn't tell us anything. They didn't say it has to follow the play or it just had to be connected in some way with the play. So we first got Jeanette Witterson, who did um, a novel called The Gap of Time, which is The mm -hmm. Winter's Tale. And she kept pretty closely. She has a, a something representing each of the characters and plot elements. And mm -hmm. I thought she did it very cleverly. Mm -hmm. uh, Howard Jacobson did Merchant of Venice, and it's, it's called Shylock is My Name, and it is mostly about Shylock, so it doesn't so much follow the plot as the character. And Ann Tyler did Vinegar Girl, which is Taming of the Shrew, a very tall order in our day and age. Mm -hmm. But she makes it come out all right. Hmm. And I chose The Tempest. And... Um, You've long been a Shakespeare aficionado. You've gone to Stratford a lot. Yeah, right? we had a lot of Shakespeare in high school. Mm -hmm. Not only did we have Shakespeare that we studied, but there was this group of leftover English, how shall I put it? They were from England and they were somehow in Canada. I'm not <laughs> sure how they got there, but there they were. And they were called the Earl Grey Players. And they would go around to high schools and put on the play that was on the final exam that year. So of course they had a full house wherever they went of nervous students. And you could be in the chorus, you could be in Macbeth if you brought your own 
plaid car rug and you could be in Julius Caesar if you brought a bed sheet. You could be in the, mm -hmm. you know, the crowd saying rubble, rubble, rubber, rubble, rubber. Um, and they would put on these plays. So that was my first view of, of Shakespeare as the play. Stratford Shakespearean Festival was starting around that same time. Mm -hmm. And it has been in full swing ever since. You do a pretty close retelling, kind of plot-wise. It's very clever. Yeah, well, uh, The Tempest do. is the play above all plays, mm -hmm. which is uh, it's the closest Shakespeare ever gets to writing about what he did all day, mm -hmm. which was putting on plays. So The Tempest itself is Prospero as director, behind the scenes, invisible as directors are, working mm -hmm. with a very good special effects guy called Ariel, uh, mm -hmm. who puts on illusions, mm -hmm. and by means of them he manipulates the other characters in the play. Um, and then there's a play within that play, which is the Mask of the Goddesses. And you set your version in Hagseed in a... I put it in something that is not quite the Stratford Shakespearean festival. Exactly. For instance, the town of Stratford does not have a pub called the Imp and um, Pignut, but, but it will. <laughs> yeah, really? it is. It is, it is like that, um, and Felix has been the artistic director, and because he hasn't been paying attention to his second-in-command, um, Tony, he gets deposed all of a sudden uh, and finds himself out in the parking lot with all his belongings in a cardboard box, as one does. Mm -hmm. So then he, um, he goes off to the version, the only thing, the thing, the thing I could get that was close to being a secluded magic island. And um, then he gets a chance to, to revenge himself upon his enemies, which he does by putting on a production of The Tempest in the place where he has been teaching literacy through literature, a nearby correctional facility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I knew the car filled with a vampire was heading there in some way. You're listening to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. Coming up, more of Doug Stanton's conversation with Margaret Atwood.
You're listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Let's return to my conversation with Margaret Atwood. Felix. Yes. Prospero. Yes. Is uh, Prospero is uh, he's he's turned out by Antonio and left Milan and shipwrecked on this island for twelve years. And so it's, it's very clever how this is all happening. And who's Ariel in your in your novel? He's the okay. uh, the, the digital hacker guy, right? Okay. Yeah. So. Felix, of course, has to cast his, his play, and he has been putting on plays. Um, he first put on Julius Caesar, very direct, easy to understand, stabbings, wars, you know, stuff, easily graspable. Um, and then he puts on Richard III, mm-hmm. which, is, which is pretty good, except a few too, too many of the cast members are on the side of Richard. <laughs> hmm. uh, so people like, the people in the uh, institution like these plays. There aren't very many women in them. And the women that are in them, they don't actually mind playing them because they're either witches or evil and old, uh, or they're Lady Macbeth. Uh, but when it comes to The Tempest, he has a problem. He has to talk them into it. First, they don't want to do it because there's a fairy in it. Nobody wants to play the fairy. So he has to really... Um, you mean Ariel? The, yeah. yeah. Ariel flies around, is invisible, sucks flowers. It's, it's not something they want to be. So he has to talk them around Ariel, and he gets them to re-visualize Ariel as an alien, which is much more acceptable than a fairy. Mm-hmm. And when they realize that Ariel is the special effects guy, and that means that he's, everybody on his team is gonna to get to fool around with computers. That's a big incentive. Mm-hmm. So he's able to cast Ariel. The other character has trouble with is casting Miranda, a 15-year-old girl. None of these guys wants to play a 15-year-old girl, nor would they be convincing. Mm-hmm. So he, he hires an actress to come in and, and do it. He talks her into it. And um, her name is Anne Marie, and it helps that she's a, a choreographer and extremely fit and vigorous dancer. And they've worked together he and He and Anne Marie have, yeah. yes, back before he was deposed. So the thing about Prospero in the play is it's, it's, it's his own fault that he ended up on that island. He immersed himself in magic studies instead of paying attention to being the Duke of Milan. And Shakespeare certainly took that view. And it's in, it's in Prospero's account of himself. It doesn't make him feel any less vengeful. Right. <laughs> but he does know that it's partly his fault. I wanted to just to talk about the sense of prison or imprisonment and really go, and it'll bring us to, the, to today to talk about Handmaid's Tale, because it seems more prescient than ever. Um, oh, yeah, would that pu- it were not so. Published in 1985, and if you haven't read this amazing novel, do so among the others. Um, I reread it recently. Um, d- tell us what that book is about and, and how you feel today looking back on it as it speaks to our society. Okay, so back in those days when I began writing it in West Berlin before the fall of the uh, wall, 
So I, I think I was interested in, in three sets of things. Number one was Puritan New England, which was not um, a democracy. It was a, it was a theocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, n- number two, having read so many utopias, dystopias, etc., um, in my life, and some of them as a teenager, I'd always sneakingly wanted to write one, but they were mostly written from the point of view of men, so I was wondered how that would be if you turned it around and wrote it from the point of view of a woman. Um, I'd always been pretty interested in totalitarianisms and how they work. Uh, so I was interested in the answer to the question, what would a totalitarianism be like in the United States today um, if there were to be one? What kind of totalitarianism would it be? This is and, 1985. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 1985, we were beginning to see the stirrings of the kind of uh, cultural divide and uh, right-wing politics that we have seen recently today, um, but they were more incipient. You know, they weren't really, they had not really achieved a lot of mm-hmm. political power at that time. Um, so the answer to the question, what would a totalitarianism look like if we had one today? The answer would not be it would be communist. I don't think that would have any takers. And you need at least 30% of people on your side to get a really good totalitarianism going. You know, Is you that like to, a rule? Just yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, it's just about like a rule. Uh, consult the experts. Wow. <laughs> you need a certain number of people willing to go along with you uh, and see the beauty of it and realize that they themselves can benefit if they uh, have positions of power within this thing. So. So what would it be like? I used to think that it would not be, um, in order to protect liberal democracy, we have to take away a lot of your rights and privileges. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not so sure about that anymore either. Um, we're doing this for your own safety, mm-hmm. etc. We've heard it before. Mm-hmm. So it would be much more likely to have some kind of uh, religious, facade, Mm -hmm. and whatever these things are, when they get going, it's always ever only a facade. So, Well, it's another sense of using magic, right, to imprison someone. What, you mean, you mean images and rhetoric? Oh, sure. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's why I wanted to write it, but I also um, didn't want to put anything into it that people had not done. Right. at some time, in some place. In other words, I didn't want anyone saying, this all comes out of your dark, twisted imagination, and people would never do this. What do you mean by that, though? Do you mean that uh, they would go to a grocery store in this novel, which they do, in The Handmaid's Tale, they go shopping? Uh, no, I mean that the um, kinds of things that we find difficult, um, or I hope we find difficult in the book, such as the bodies hanging on on walls, um, and even the people pulling on the rope in the group hanging, and people controlled by, by uh, what they wear, mm-hmm. uh, 
people being forbidden to read, all of these things have happened. And I see what you're saying, because we have hung people, we have banned books, we have controlled people through their clothing. And this is happening in like, it's happening in the, somewhat in the future, but not really futuristically. Well, in 1985, um, I was writing about a future that was maybe 20 years along from there, but we've already passed that point. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not on another planet, it's not in a right. galaxy far, far away and in another time. It is uh, on the, this planet and we have all of the technology um, to do such a thing and we also um, have done all of the things that are, that are in the book, so it's not it's not outside the realm of human nature that people would behave that way. How did, so for, for the audience, the character, the female protagonist is um, of, how do you pronounce her name? <laughs> you can't make me pronounce the names of stuff I write. It's not fair. Wow. We want to hear it from the master. <laughs> okay, Offred. Offred. So she is the um, object of the preposition. Always. Yeah, so I made all the names uh, of the people in the book. They're, they're actually like uh, Mrs. This and Mrs. That, and they're like um, some other languages that have um, suffixes and prefixes right. attached. So it's just like that. Tell us, the premise of the book is the world has ended. To mm, it's so toxic. No. no, only the United States. Okay. Yeah. So Canada's still okay, and you can still... Yeah. <laughs> And you can still escape to it, as people have done <laughs> over time uh, for quite a, a long time. So Canada's there, and it's, ha it's happening in Boston, essentially. Okay, so, yeah, not all of the United States has yet uh, come under the control of this regime, so it's at war with parts of itself. New York is holding out, as it would. Uh, but I sent my... my um, my book in Cambridge, Massachusetts, home of Harvard, which began life as a theological seminary in the 17th century mm -hmm. and now fancies itself as a bastion of liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. When I first published this book, Harvard was quite sniffy about it. <laughs> they didn't like it that I'd strung bodies up on the Harvard wall. And that they, they made live, Widener Library into the home of the Secret Service. Um, so they were sniffy, but they've come around. Mm -hmm. They've come around over time. Mm -hmm. So I set it there, and all of the buildings in the book are real, except one of them that's been torn down since. But, uh, for instance, the Brattle Theater is in there, and the Widener Library, and um, they're mm -hmm. recognizable. And that's what people found shocking, I think, at first, was that this place that was supposed to be so open and, and liberal and so on and so forth, uh, that I'd made that the center of this oppressive totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to the, um, the idea that it's a feminist book or a feminist? Um... Well, what do we mean by that word? It's always the question, do we mean um, you have to wear boots and overalls and kick men off cliffs, or do we mean women are human beings? Mm -hmm. If the latter, I put my hand up. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but it is really a, uh, 
It's a book about totalitarianism. You'll notice that the, that the men on the lower uh, echelons of society aren't bearing so well either. So it's only the top levels that get um, de facto polygamy. The men on the lower layers have to, have to deal with uh, only econo-wives and the econo wives have to do all these functions. The housekeeping, the, <laughs> wow. the kids. The <laughs> right. The, um, the, the description, so only certain women can have children. Yeah. So, and these so, so the other premise is that when things are rare and valued, people on the top layers of society get more of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It certainly happened in Nazi Germany, and it happened in Russia, and as we're stealing other people's children, that is an old motif. Mm -hmm. So Hitler actually stole Polish children, blonde ones, and uh, placed them with German families, hoping that they will, would grow up into Germans. Didn't exactly happen, but that was his idea. Mm -hmm. And he also had for the SS, he had um, Lebensborn uh, mm -hmm. enclaves where you could have, quotes, biological wives. So all of this has, has gone on. Child stealing also was big in, in Argentina under the generals, as you know. Sure, in the Despiciados. Exactly. And um, enforced childbirth, that was Ceausescu in, in Romania. Mm -hmm. So these things they're, mm -hmm. they're motifs, mm -hmm. and um, it is a feature of totalitarianisms that they interest themselves in those kinds of things. They get very interested in women's bodies, who gets to control them, uh, who gets more of them, and those sorts of, um, those sorts of things. What, in 1983, when you're, this is just, you know, this is, bubbling in your psyche, what, where is it coming from, this story? It's, it's coming this. from um, 17th century New England, totalitarianism, sci-fi, uh, and dystopias, and the political statements being made by people at that time. Mm -hmm. And I am one of those people who does not believe it could never happen here. I just have never believed that. I think that anything can happen anywhere given, given the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And people were saying at that time women's, women's places in the home. Mm -hmm. In fact, some women made quite lucrative careers out of saying that. <laughs> what am I missing? Who? Oh. Okay, yeah. Among others. Yeah, Phyllis Schlafly, among others, did quite well out of it. Right. Um, and Anita Bryant. Exactly. Um, yeah. Lots of examples. Mm -hmm. um, so, so all very well. If, if women's place is in the home, having let them out of the box, how do we stuff them back in? Thank, and they're getting up to go form the line already. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.
That was Margaret Atwood talking with Doug Stanton. Margaret Atwood's latest books are Hagseed and Angel Catbird. Support for the National Writers Series comes from Jonathan and Marissa Wege, supporting good things that need to happen now. Learn more about the National Writers Series and upcoming events at nationalwritersseries.org. And listen to past programs at interlockenpublicradio.org. For Interlochen Public Radio, I'm Linnea Milkerick. <laughs>